Good morning. We've got some visitors here, and we want to welcome you uh, to this church fellowship and this body. Hopefully you know somebody that you're sitting next to, or that's the reason you're here, somebody invited you. So thanks for being here, and I hope this uh, word this morning is encouraging, and I hope it's just based on truth. Uh, something we strive here at this, this body of Christ is just teach what the word teaches and, and move on. Uh, accept it and, and uh, put, apply that to our lives. Let's go to the Father before we get started. Father, thank you so much for uh, this, this awesome day. Thank you for the sunrise and the sun. And thank you for the, the wind and the air and the oxygen that we can breathe. And Father, we know you are the creator, this awesome God that has given us the cosmos and the universe and water and earth and animals to marvel at your creation, Lord, and we thank you so much that we get to be a part of it, and we give you all the glory. Be with us this morning, Father, as, uh, as we dive into your word. Praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. I often preach on uh, biblical doctrine. Uh, for some reason, that's been something that's driven me for a lot of years to study what does the word say, why does it say it, how does it conflict with some things that other people teach, and I believe that knowledge is power. I believe doctrine is power. I believe to understand the Word of God keeps us, uh, it's like our sword. You know, it says in Hebrews uh, 4.12, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And I feel like knowledge, Bible knowledge, is, 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 is how we protect ourselves. And oftentimes, um, you know, in our Bible study, our men's Bible study, we'll get into a, a discussion and a debate, and we always have several men, uh, pretty much everyone in that group that goes right to the scriptures. And, you know, the book says in 2 Timothy, Paul wrote a letter, two letters to Timothy, and the second letter that he wrote, he wrote, uh, do yourself, or do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and correctly handles the word of truth. And I personally love to dissect the word. I love to get in there, and oftentimes when I do dissect the word and I get deeper and deeper and deeper into the word, my, my understanding might change a little bit. It, doesn't, it hasn't yet in the last 17, 18 years of studying the word of God. It hasn't completely flipped. Um, but it does get a little bit deeper, and sometimes it changes a little bit. And I think that's good because I think it's at that point when we get new information is when the word of God judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, as it does say in Hebrews 4.12. I think it's at that point that God determines whether or not are we truly humble before him and seeking his truth, or do we want to find something in some way, make it fit what we believe? And this morning I want to look at a passage that years ago, I mean 20, 22 years ago, I started reading this passage. And I was reading the book of Proverbs a lot, because that was basically my level uh, of understanding. And, um, you know, the proverb says, how does a young man keep himself pure? or keep his way pure. And for some reason, that resonated with me as a, a early 20s trying to figure life out. And so I began to read through the book of Proverbs. And I got to this passage in Proverbs 6 that just kind of blew my mind. And, and when I read through Proverbs, I would constantly get new enlightenment. I would search for something, I would read it, and I would sometimes read through it, and then I would read it again, the book of Proverbs, because I think it's, what, 31 chapters. And I would read through Proverbs again, and I would learn something new every time. But the first time I read through it, I remember, I can specifically remember I was sitting there reading Proverbs chapter 6. Go with me to Proverbs 6. Job Psalms, Psalm Proverbs. 
And in verse 16, it says this, These are the six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. So seven things that Solomon writes that are an abomination to the Lord. Seven things, six the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And I remember reading this and I was thinking, wow, hates and abomination. Those two words, hates and abomination, or hate, if you're in the King James Version, it doesn't use the plural version of it, it uses just hate. Hate and abomination. And I look up that word hate, and over in, let me just read this real quick, real quick to you. In Luke 14, it says, oh, Luke 14, I believe it's chapter, okay, so verse 25, uh, Luke 14, 25, large tra uh, crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone does not come to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So I look up that word hate, I'm like, that doesn't sound like the Jesus that I've been taught about in Sunday school from the time I was six years old. This doesn't sound like the Jesus that I've heard about through my whole life of Jesus is this God, the lion and the lamb, but he's the lamb and he's got the little children coming to him. But that word hate in Luke, in the Greek, is meseo, M-I-S-E-O, which means to love less. So Jesus isn't saying you need to hate your dad. He's saying you need to love God more than anything else and love less your father or your mother or your sister or your brother than God the Father. And so this word in Proverbs 6, hate, is different than that word that's in the Greek. The word in the Hebrew for there are six things the Lord hates the word hate is to hate personally, an enemy or a foe. And an abomination is something that is disgusting and abhorrence, especially an idol or idolatry. So what God is saying here in Proverbs 6 is that there's seven things that God personally hates and considers them his enemy, our enemy, and considers them a disgusting aberration. And if you go through this passage... I'm willing to bet a small amount that it will resonate with every one of you on one aspect of these seven things. Because I know it did me. I know as I read through these things again for the umpteenth time, I was reading through this Proverbs 6 and these seven things that God hates and that are an abomination to Him, and I felt a little prick in my heart saying, is that you? Do you struggle with that? Is that something that you have fallen victim to? The sin that God hates? And I want to learn to avoid these things if I'm going to be a follower of God. So we're going to look at these six things. And we're going to look at the six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable. And the first one is haughty eyes. That word haughty eyes is the Hebrew room. R-U-H-M. And it sounds like you would say, I'm in a, I'm in a workout room. Or I'm in the... My bedroom, that's how you say that word room. And it means to bring up, to exalt oneself, to be lofty, and set oneself up high. And so God's saying, I hate haughty eyes. I hate, I abhor when somebody places themselves up here and looks down upon other people. 
And if you go into Romans, there's a New Testament passage that Paul is saying to the church at Rome, and he's addressing the same thing in Romans chapter 12, and he's talking about spiritual gifts, and he says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Do not think of yourself higher than you ought to. And so in Proverbs 6, God's saying, I hate haughty eyes. I hate someone that elevates himself or looks down on other people. We can look at this as an example. When someone has haughty eyes or prideful eyes, they look at others as if they are better than those other people. Maybe we justify, when I say we, I mean me, maybe I justify looking down on the homeless. Maybe I'll drive by and I'll look down and I'm like, man, what a loser. Why doesn't the guy get a job? Why doesn't he work? Guilty. <laughs> just, this is my confessional platform. Guilty. Maybe I look at them and I look down upon them. Maybe I look down at the teenager that is clueless and stuck in sin or complacency. Maybe I look down at the gay man or the adulterer or the thief. You're like, where is this guy going right now? But when I elevate myself and look down on other people because of their sin, I wonder if that's what God is talking about when he says, hey, you've got something in your eye. It's a two by 12. And then there's this splinter in this other guy's eye that you're trying to take out. Now, do not hear me saying that God doesn't hate sin. God hates sin. He abhors sin. Sin is an abomination to him. But he loves the sinner. And so when he's sitting here, when he's saying in Proverbs 6 that he hates people that look, or he hates the, the, the haughty eyes, the person that's going to look down upon people for their sin, we've got to realize that that same person that's caught in that sin, God died for them as well. Jesus died for them as well. They are lost and they are in massive need of repentance and salvation and forgiveness. That's, make no mistake about that. But he hates when we look down upon people for the sin in their lives rather than love the person as a sinner that needs salvation and needs forgiveness. The second one that he hates here when he says, I hate or detestable to me a lying tongue. This one's pretty easy to understand, I think, why God hates. If you look at the very beginning that we're going through right now in, in, uh, on our Wednesday night study of this Genesis study, we're going through Genesis 1, and I think we're going to be in chapters 2 and 3 this coming Wednesday. But if you look at this lying tongue, we see at the beginning of time, the father of lies is Satan himself. And what he got Adam and Eve to question was what God said. Did God really say not to do this? this? Yep, that's what God said. No, you will not. He lied to them because they did die. He lied to them. And so Satan is the father of lies. A lying tongue can lead to all sorts of problems. That's why in our household... On a little personal note, our household, lying to me is the worst sin that my children could ever commit against my wife and I. Lying to me is the worst sin possible because it does not allow us to move forward in truth. Because it continues, it perpetuates. One lie leads to another. So lying, like Barney Fife would say, you've got to nip it, nip it, nip it in the bud. Lying has got to be something as parents that we say, I will tolerate 
Parents are going to do their own thing. I will tolerate certain things, a little bit more of those. But lying is something that will never be tolerated in our house. Because it is dangerous and Satan is the father of lies. And if you look at John 14, 6, Jesus even calls himself the truth. Lying is the opposite of Jesus. That's why when kids get caught up in that, and it perpetuates to adulthood, but if kids get caught up in that, it is our job, it's incumbent upon us to nip that and get it finished right now. We will not allow lying in the home. And also because God hates it. It's an abomination to him. Another one that God says he hates and is abomination is the hands that shed innocent blood. I wrote or I have written here, killing the innocent is the epitome of cruelty. And we can see it on a basic level of just an imagination of taking a boxing match. Usually in a boxing match, you have two people of equal weight and equal height and equal length, pretty close. You're not going to put an MMA, uh, you're not going to put Brock Lesnar against someone that's five foot eight, uh, 160 pounds. They've got to be equal match. So imagine if we were to watch a pay-per-view on two boxers, and before the match started, they took one of the boxers, they tied his hands behind his back, and they tied his feet together, and he couldn't move. And you had to watch somebody just getting pummeled by someone else, an innocent man getting pummeled by someone. That would be, all of us would look at that and go, this isn't right, this isn't fair. But when you see here, when it says hands that shed innocent blood, killing the innocent is the epitome of being cruel. Someone that cannot defend themselves. We can take that in a lot of different directions, can't we, in today's culture. Killing of the innocent, God says he hates and is an abomination. Another one is plotting evil, a heart that devises wicked schemes. Plotting evil is worse than doing something wrong in the spur of the moment. Both are wrong, but plotting wrongdoing involves in-depth thought of how to hurt someone else. These are things that God says he hates and that are an abomination. You look at the Twin Towers 21 years ago, September 1st, 2001. We had a plot to destroy America, a plot to, to kill innocent people. And that's what happened. A heart that devises wicked schemes. I could almost go as far as saying on a more practical level, what about bullying in the school? Do you guys ever witness that? How somebody maybe thinks about picking on somebody else and devises a plan? God hates that. Racing to do wrong is another one, he says. A heart that devises wicked schemes and feet that are quick to rush into evil that is similar to plotting evil, that we are so hell-bent on revenge that you feel like what you're doing is right. An example is when someone harms you, do we turn the other cheek? Or do we devise a way to get our pound of flesh? Do we look for opportunity to harm them? If they want your cloak, give them your tunic as well. If they want you to go one mile, go two. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek. God says, somebody that is a, a feet that are quick to rush into evil to get our pound of flesh or to harm other people. God says he hates that. Another one here that was a little bit closer to home for us, uh, for my wife and I years ago, a false witness who pours out lies. A false witness is telling other people about somebody else's character while knowing they are indeed speaking lies to harm that person's character. I'm willing to wager that many of us have heard things about ourselves that weren't quite true. Steve, I'm th I thought about you when I was writing that. Noble man, 
running his business with God as the leader of the pack and you handle things as a business way and next thing you know you hear you're the most evil vile man on the earth God says he hates a false witness who pours out lies I don't know if it was I don't know how many years ago it was now I've kind of put it behind me because I've turned the other cheek and and not seeking to uh, get my pound of flesh but I was at a meeting with a, a minister about I don't know maybe it was 12 years ago and he told me that uh, there was a rumor that was going around and had slowly started to infiltrate some of the people within the church body that I had an inappropriate relationship with a woman in the church body and her and her husband actually left the church because of that relationship. They weren't accusing me of any uh, physical immorality, if you understand what I'm saying, but there were some things that were said and done that had caused them to leave. And I can tell you, I was livid, and my head had flames in it. And I made a point to talk to that minister in no uncertain terms. I said, if these accusations start to spread throughout the church body that are completely 100% false, I will be up there on Sunday morning with a very, very captive audience and explain to them what's really happening at this church body. I didn't feel like I was getting my pound of flesh, but I was not going to have my children or my child or my wife being uh, a victim of the lies that were being spread. A false witness will ruin somebody's character. And God says he hates it. It's an abomination. And last one here that says God hates, Proverbs 6, verse 7, of, uh, verse 19, and a man who stirs up dissension among his brothers. Sowing discord within a group of people is like fanning a flame of fire. With that same energy, you could have eased tensions, but instead, you kept it roaring. God is a God of peace, not of discord. When someone sins against you within the church, how long do you hold on to it? Do you let it go? Or do you sow discord? Will you make the infraction known and cause others to speak ill of your brother in Christ? You see that God is a unity, God is a God of peace and of unity. When we do our part to keep failures from the wind, we glorify God. I have a short paragraph that I wrote here. It says, make no mistake, God hates these things. They are an abomination to him. The haughty eyes, the lying tongue, the hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies on a man who stirs up dissension among his brethren. If we have been or are guilty of any of these sins, God calls us to repent. I just want you guys to know I'm not like speaking directly to anybody here or myself. <laughs> this sounds like a sermon. It's like, who's he talking about? Did something happen? Nothing happened not, that I'm aware of. Nothing's happened. I think we've got an awesome church party. We all love each other. Once a month we meet over there and we eat. So for you people that are visitors today, are like, did we come in on a Sunday when he's going to, like, did, no, not that, everything's good. We've got an awesome church body. People are serving. We love one another. But I read this passage recently and I was going, man, it says he hates these things. They're detestable to him. It's an abomination to him. And every one of these things, I can tell you the very first one, I've been guilty of recently. I can look at the very first one. It says that I have haughty eyes. I've looked at people as I drive down the street or I think about people and I get frustrated and I 
subconsciously or consciously elevate myself above them because of the sin in their life. And God died for them too. Jesus died for them too. He came on the cross to die for their sins. Who am I to sit here and look at somebody else and think that I'm better than them when I've got plenty in my own I need to get rid of? So don't hear this as there's something going on in our church. There's not. There's something going on in every church. And that God hates these things. But keep this in mind, a passage that we can always remind ourselves of in 1 John chapter 5, or, or I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says, This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you, God is light, in Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship, that word fellowship means partnership and association. If we claim to have partnership and association with Jesus, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk, that word walk is synonymous with live. If our lives are living synonymous, if we're walking synonymously within the light with Jesus as He is in the light, it says we have fellowship with each other, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son purifies us from all sin. So if we get caught in something, if we get caught in being prideful or haughty, if we get caught in sowing discord, if we get caught in, in lying, if we get caught in these things, the beauty is we have a cross that's empty. And Jesus died on that for us. So that we can walk with Him in light and be forgiven of those things that we fell short on. There's a few other things that God hates before we get to the positive part of our message. In Exodus chapter 20, we see the Ten Commandments. And Jesus is talking to the nation of Israel. He's giving these commandments to the nation of Israel. And it's very clear that Jesus obviously has some frustration and anger towards having other gods before Him. In Exodus chapter 20, He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. If you look, and from what I, I would like to clarify this with some of our other, some biblical scholars here, but out of the Ten Commandments, nine of them are taught very specifically in the New Testament. And one is taught as an idea, which is keep the Sabbath day holy. But this first one, you shall have no other gods before me, I would imagine that's something that God hates. That he takes second fiddle. And if it goes right into the second one where it says, uh, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. We see how much God hates graven images by what he did to the nation of Israel when the tablets were thrown down because they made a golden calf. We see the anger... And we, like, we don't like to think of God as being angry. But you see the anger when he throws down. He's, he's ready to wipe them out. And if you look at Exodus, what he did when they worshipped a golden calf, it's pretty graphic. How many of us today have idols in our lives that we have placed before God Almighty? I've said this before. We have a show called American Idol. <laughs> I mean, Hollywood is just coming out and saying, hey, I'm going to put it on a, a table for you. American Idol. We can worship. You go to the football game and you watch the football game. 
Okay, there's, there, maybe there's 50, 60 people in here. Right now there are people standing. When it was in Green Bay in February, they're standing in the freezing cold waiting to get in, almost getting frostbite so they could worship a game. I'm not saying I don't like watching sports, but that has become an idol for people. Disagree or disagree? It's an idol. We have placed it above our relationship and above our, our desire to follow God. And so when he says that thou shalt not make any graven idols or any graven images, I think God hates that. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord by God in vain. Nobody likes to be called bad names. And yet the creator of the cosmos makes it one of his top ten. Don't use my name in vain. Don't use it flippantly. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. I recognize this passage where Jesus says, I didn't make Sabbath for man. Or I didn't make man for the Sabbath. I made Sabbath for man. I made it so you could have a day to worship me and remember me and come to my table and eat my body and drink my blood and remember what I've done for you because throughout the week, if you're not constantly surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ, you're going to fall victim to idol worship. And I'm going to give you this day where you can come build yourself back up and you can listen to the word and you can fellowship together, you can pray together, you can eat together. And that's why God, I think, makes it such a big deal about the Sabbath from the Old Testament and then bringing it into the New Testament about keep a day holy to the Lord where you can serve others and be with other people and listen to his word and pray together. That's what I see this saying here. I think God hates it because what happens when we start making Sunday worship as something that's an option to us, I'm going to preach at you now a little bit, when we make Sunday worship an option, and if it fits in because we've got all these other things to do, I say that I'm going to be gone for the next two Sundays, so I don't, don't call me a hypocrite. But anybody that knows me knows that church life is a priority for my family. They know that. We don't just decide to go, no offense against camping, we're going to go camping all summer and never go to church because we've got to work all week and it's the only time I can really, you know, get rid of some frustrations or whatever. You don't think God can do that? And we see that in, in our lives today, how we've placed God as kind of secondary and tertiary to our responsibility to Him, and it's for our own good. Honor your father and mother. Honor means to love your father and mother and respect them. Kids, when we don't do that, God made it one of His commandments. Honor, respect your father and mother. Thou shalt not kill. God wants us to protect human life. Thou shalt not commit adultery. This means husbands and wives should be faithful to one another. Thou shalt not steal. No one is permitted to take something that belongs to one another. Thou shalt not bear false witness. That means don't lie. Don't lie. Do not tell stories that are untrue. When you tell a lie, you hurt yourself as well as others. And the tenth one is you shall not covet. Covet means to want something that belongs to someone else. A person who covets may be led to break all the other Commandments. Do not covet. Do not desire what somebody else has. We look at these things in Proverbs 6 and we look at these things in Exodus and it's just like, man, God has made it so clear 
about things that he just does not like. Maybe that was too nice. God has made it clear of things he hates and that are an abomination to him. We've got to take this stuff into consideration. We've talked last week and we've talked in Genesis about uh, on Wednesdays about what God has done and what he is doing and the black holes of things we can't even fathom how amazing God is. And if God is not our number one priority, that if our daily life is not thinking, what would God have me do? What can I do for you today, God? How can I worship you? How can I glorify you? How can I become more like your son? If we're not asking these things, I think we're falling short, to be totally candid with you, I think we're falling short of what God has called us to. For our own good. That's what we got to remember. It's not because God, I mean, it's not because God is this vain God, it's because God's a loving God. If he was a narcissist, he wouldn't have sent his son Jesus. He wouldn't have left heaven to come to sacrifice himself for us. He's doing these things. He's telling us these things. If you go to Deuteronomy 28, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. He's saying, do these things. I'm giving you these rules. I'm giving you these laws. I'm giving these instructions for your own good. And then we have our mindset that goes, well, that's what it sounds like probably to God. It sounds just doesn't even make sense. Because every excuse we make, it does, God's going, no. It's like when Ridge would argue with Brenda about chemistry. What? What are you saying? Well, dogs have fur. What, what, what does that have to do with chemistry? And I think that's how God is when we start making excuses about what he has said to do. God is saying, dude, I hate these things. Don't do them. I hate them. Do what I've told you to do. So we see the things that God hates. We've got to say, well, what does God love? What does God love? God loves people. You hear this lie about God. Satan, the father of lies, this lie about God, that God is evil. And that God doesn't love you. And God didn't die for you. And that your sin is too great. And that's not the God that I see in the scriptures. The God I see in the scriptures is the God of love because it says, John 3, 16, we used to see it all the time at football games. We don't see it hardly any anymore. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He gave his only son. If you want to understand or try and fathom that, go read about Abraham and Isaac. Knife, child, tied, getting ready to kill his only son as a sacrifice. Stop, Abraham. Now I know that you love God. Because you were about to take your only son. The, thing, the difference is there with Abraham and Isaac is God didn't do this. They continued and they crucified him. So God loves people. And God loves sinners. It says that in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While I was in my high school days and my college days living so far from God, trying to find the light, trying to figure it out, but still just away from God, outside of his will, 
outside of his choices, outside of his desire. God had me in mind. He died for me while I was a sinner. He died for all those people. Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. He was on a cross getting crucified and asking God to forgive the very people ever crucifying him. Think about that love. God loves sinners, but he hates wickedness. He hates lawlessness. Do not hear me saying that God is a God of saying, oh, just do whatever you want because I love you. That's not, also, that's not the God of the Bible. The God is very clear that in Psalm 45, he hates wickedness. He hates lawlessness, but he loves the ones that commit those acts. He loves them when he says that he desires all men everywhere to come to repentance for our own good. He loves all Christians. John wrote, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. God so loved us, we have known him and believe the love that God has for us. God loves those who do right. If you look at Proverbs 15, verse 9, Solomon wrote that God loves one who pursues righteousness. There's a passage, I think it's in Daniel 9, verse 3. I'm not positive. I think it's in Daniel 9. But it, it gives us this picture of God hovering and searching the heavens, searching for someone that he can strengthen, someone that is leading people to righteousness. He is looking to strengthen them. Well, I see somebody writing down a passage now, so let me just give you the passage. I think I know what side of the page it's on. Nope, I was wrong. It's Daniel 12. And that's not even the one I'm looking for. So forget I said that. I'll find it afterwards and I may send a text to everybody. But there's a passage that says God is seeking to strengthen those. He is hovering above looking for someone to strengthen that are leading people to righteousness. God loves those who do right. God loves those who obey Him. We live in this weird society that thinks obedience to God is a work salvation thing. And it's wrong theology. I'm telling you right now, it's wrong theology. Right theology is God loves those who obey Him. David and Moses remind us that God's steadfast love is always, in, in Psalm 103, God's love, steadfast love is always towards those who fear Him and in Deuteronomy 7, keep His commandments. His steadfast love is for those who fear Him and keep His commandments. Why else would He say blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience? God loves those who obey Him. If I want to be loved by God, ooh, this sounds like work salvation. If I want to be loved by God, I need to respect His Word and obey it always. That sounds like a lofty goal. But when I read Scripture, when I see Scripture, and I see the promises in, in Psalms, I see that God is going to honor and love and bless those that obey His commandments. I mean, you look at Ecclesiastes, the second to last verse, written by the wisest man ever, said, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Guess what one of His commandments is? Love your neighbor. Love your enemies yourself. Husbands, love your wives. We've got all these passages that are commands of God that if we love Him, we'll obey. If we don't love Him, we'll go, ah. And then what we do is we put God secondary and we put ourselves first. Primary. 
That's what the, this is what the scriptures teach. God loves those who treat others fairly. We see that David reveals in Psalm 37 that the Lord loves justice and that God is just in Deuteronomy 32 and he expects his people to be just. It's interesting, a couple weeks ago we started, we did the, the, maybe it was a month ago or so, we did the financial discussions throughout our, our uh, services and we talked about what does the Bible actually say about tithes and offerings. It says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7 that God loves a cheerful giver. Not someone that gives reluctantly or under compulsion, but someone that just says, yeah, that's, you, need, you need help, here you go. You need this, here you go. God loves someone that just says, here you go. God loves a cheerful giver. I was going through this and I was looking at this passage that, that was put in front of me um, in the book of Amos, one of the minor prophets. And in Amos, in verse 11, chapter 5, it says, You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins you oppress the righteous and take bribes, and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. And then he gives this recommendation and this encouragement. And he says, Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. I believe sometimes to see the good, you've got to look at the bad. You've got to recognize the evil if you're going to recognize the goodness. And when we see in Scripture in Proverbs chapter 6, when we see in Scripture the penalty for sin in Deuteronomy 28, and we see in Scripture Exodus and what happens to those that disobeyed God and made the golden calf, when we see these things, we've got to recognize what God hates. What he abhors. Because if he is our king, like we call him, we sing praises to him and we worship him. And in the other hand, we're doing everything or some things that he hates, that are an abomination to him. Is he really our God? Because if we see these things, for me, I'm going to confess to you, for me, haughty eyes. I'm not going to lie to you. Not that I'm prideful in what I do, but I, I, I don't look at myself higher than other people in the church body. I, I don't. But when I see people that are living lives that, that are outside of God's will, I get so frustrated that I look down upon them. And I think that's wrong. And if I were to be a true Christian man, I would repent of that, which I have. I would repent of that. I would say, Father, forgive me for thinking that way. Is there anything in here that we've talked about? And we make, Jesus makes it harder in Matthew 5 and 6 when he goes on the Sermon on the Mount. Don't commit adultery. I don't look at a woman lustfully. Huh? I can't even look. You know that lame saying? It's, it doesn't hurt as long as you don't touch. You can look, but don't. No, that's wrong. That's against God's will. If you look lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. So God ups the bar. Jesus ups the bar in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And so when we look at what God hates, the sin that separates us from Him, do we make a change? Or do we just say, ah, God's a God of mercy. God's a God of grace. God's a God of forgiveness. Well, of course He is. Of course He is. He requires repentance. He requires it. And then when you look at the beauty of what He says and the promises that He gives us and the things that He loves, it's like He's doing this for our own good. So my question is, are we going to love good and hate evil? And my challenge is, to each one of us sitting here, including myself, if there's something in your life, if there's something in your life that is making you fall short of looking the word in the, in the face and just saying, God, continue to lead me. And if I'm, if I'm in wrong, if I'm in error here, give me the strength to repent and move on to be more like your son. If there's something in there, do it. Do it. Repent of whatever the sin is caught in your life. Repent of that. Because he says, if we walk in fellowship with him, the blood of his son, Jesus, purifies us from every sin. That's the beauty. The beauty of repentance is that we're, I mean, we are, God's like, I forgive you. One of my favorite, I'll end on this passage because it's one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. It's Deuteronomy 30, I believe. It's after the promises of the blessings given to the nation of Israel, and it's after the curses to the nation of Israel for disobedience. He says, when all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you, and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today. Listen to that. Listen to that passage. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God. When you return through repentance, when you're going this way against God and you're struck by something that God says that's wrong, you need to change the way you look at things, you need to have a paradigm shift, and you return and you turn back to the Lord your God, when you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where He scattered you. You were scattered from your disobedience. I'm going to gather you back because of your repentance. Now obey Him. And then look at this beautiful passage that follows directly. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens from there, the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. It doesn't matter how bad your sin is. It doesn't matter how far you are from God. It doesn't matter if you return. If you are the prodigal, if you are the one that has sinned against God, and you say, God, I don't want this anymore. I want you. And you turn, and you come back towards Him. He will be like the Father running to greet you. Not sitting there going, we need to talk about your shame, boy. That's not God. God said, come here. Come here. I want you back. I want you back. That's the, gospel. That's the gospel message. That's the story of the Bible. I pray to God that you guys get it. It, it, it enters your mind that you go, I can, I can have messed up, but I can be clean. God will accept me back. 
And that's why that first thing that we talked about, haughty eyes, is so dangerous. That's why it's caused, because haughty eyes will cause people to think they're not worthy of forgiveness. It goes deeper than just putting yourself on a pedestal. It causes other people to go, oh, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy because he doesn't think I am. You see why this is so important to look at these passages in Proverbs 6 and go, man, is that me? Am I being dishonest? Am I envying? Am I committing adultery in my mind? Am I coveting? It's so essential to look at these things and say, God, make me better. Make me more like you. This morning when you take communion, I don't know who's doing communion this morning. Steve, when we take communion this morning, man, after, after Steve's done preparing our hearts for it, I pray that you just, man, go to God. Say, God, reveal something in me that I need to become more like you.